0: Hi, I'm Jenny, the host of It's Murder Up North. If you're curious about the murderous north of England, this podcast is definitely for you. I've lived in various parts of the north of England. I went to college in the shadow of Saddleworth Moor, where Myra Hindley and Ian Brady buried those five innocent children. I've worked in the city of Leeds, where the Yorkshire Ripper targeted his victims in the 1970s. Knowing how geographically close I've been to these crimes, made me curious, and that curiosity became this podcast. However, my main hope is to help you see the person, not the victim. Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Well, welcome back to the Jury Room Podcast. Today we have an author on. Now, he didn't always live on that side of the law, but uh, he now... Writes books and tries to, you know, tell his story. We have Mr. Paul Darion. Hi, Paul.
1: Hey, Kevin. Good to be here. Happy New Year, by the way.
0: Oh, yeah. Happy New Year. Well, all the way from uh, sunny California. Well, kind of sunny California. It's super cold here, right? Well, not Canadian cold, but it's super cold here right now.
1: <laughs> I heard, you know, what I heard a friend of mine was telling me it was cold down there. And I said, well, you're not in Canada. I don't know if you know what cold
0: is. <laughs> Uh, so why don't you introduce yourself, tell, tell us a little bit about where you come from and what you're working on now.
1: Sure. Well, as you said, my name's Paul Derry. I uh, spent the first part of my life as a, a police informant uh, and then police agent, so both recruited early by the Mounties, uh, RCMP here in Canada uh, at 15 years of age. Um, and then played both sides of the law basically right up until uh, i was 38 when an operation we were doing kind of turned sour went bad and uh the target was killed and uh, i was part of the murder so then had to wear a wire against the Hells angels to uh, help solve that murder after the fact rather than before it happened obviously and uh and then I've spent the last uh, nineteen years, uh, not only eighteen of it testifying in those trials, and uh, almost twenty years now in in witness protection or or a part of that program. I was kicked out in two thousand and nine, but you're still associated to it.
0: so you say kicked out what was there a reason or was it something that that they just had to do?
1: Uh, when I, well, they gave a multitude of reasons. A uh, little bit of an overkill on the breaches that they gave me, but the main reason was I, uh, I wrote my first book, Treacherous, which talked about the operation that went bad, and since it's that police organization that uh, administers the witness protection program, uh, there was a lot of struggles between us throughout. But when I wrote the book about it, and then I then I did a documentary. Uh, on outlaw bikers uh, one of one of the episodes on there uh, that was the final straw so they kicked me out then
0: oh, okay <clears throat> so you said okay so we'll go we'll go ba- all the way back that was my first question i was curious about so you started as a kid kind of just you know not necessarily doing anything crazy but just breaking the law you know like a normal kid does right
1: yeah just smoking some weed and you know uh, minor stuff and uh, ended up with uh, a an, an RCMP officer uh, back then asking me if I would tell him where my my uh, dealer's pot was. And of course, I was only a 15 year old kid, so I I said, "Sure, I'll uh, I'll tell you where it is." He gave me the twenty dollars in 1979. That was a lot of money for me, so I took the twenty dollars. I ran down to my my dealer's house, told him I just told the mounties where your where your pot is. You better change it or hide hide change your spot. And uh, he did, and we uh, spent the twenty dollars together. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that was the first time, and the last time I, I did play played it that way. After Afterwards, I started taking the work a little bit more serious, and uh, um, but it was a few years before I actually got into it full time. I had been in and out of jail a bit, and uh, then after that, I, I started working full time undercover and and playing both sides.
0: So were you actually an undercover like law enforcement or were you, I guess in a way, a professional informant?
1: I would, well, I mean, you know, in hindsight is 2020. I, I guess now I would say I was a professional, uh, informant who was recruited by the RCMP at a young age of 15, groomed by them, cultivated and, uh, you know, and worked for them right up until that final operation. Uh, But, you know, when I was doing it, I don't know, I just thought it was a rad, so.
0: Right, okay, so you went 15, and then a few years, you're in and out of jail, and then where did you start at as, you know, for informing for them? Was it still, was it minor things, or did they just throw you straight into, like, you know, bigger crimes?
1: I'd start off with minor ones, like uh, drugs. I mean, that's all part of uh, cultivating a source. It's interesting because later on, uh, you know coming up to this time in my life, i I ended up speaking at source handling courses. So I got to see the process of them learning to cultivate informants and turning them into agents. and And so now, looking back, I can see that those small crimes were just a way to get me into that uh, into that groove, I guess. Eventually, it went to uh, harder drugs, you know, bigger dealers, and then home invasions and armed robberies, murder, um, all, you know, all crimes.
0: What was one of the biggest, I mean, when you say drugs, was it, were you nabbing like guys that were dealing cocaine and heroin and such, or was it still weed?
1: Oh, no, weed was probably in my. Teenage years, and then no, I went straight to. In fact, it went more to violence. I, I a lot of, a lot of coke along the way. Mm-hmm. Um Heroin in the later years. I, di- I didn't really get into heroin much. It, it's a limited. It was a limited, uh, kind of type drug, uh, mostly on the west coast of Canada. When I was de- dealing, obviously I was dealing too. So I was dealing cocaine and. And, and drugs at the same time as informing, obviously. And uh, so I went, you know, kind of all over the place. I mean, I, I say this to people all the time. We, we look at criminals and we think, well, he's a drug dealer or he's this. Or, no, you're just, you know, you're a criminal. Most criminals are opportunists. They're going to do whatever crime they can, it's how they make their money.
0: Now, when you were dealing, Being that you were, you know, an informant, were they looking out for you or was it just because you had an inside track already that it was able, you were able to keep yourself out of trouble?
1: I think both. Uh, They would certainly deny that they took care of me, I think. I I would think, but uh, no, the reality is you get away with a certain amount the more minor stuff you're going to get away with. And, you know, obviously if there's 60 dealers in in an area dealing and you're one of them, but you're feeding them the information, they're not going to take you down. Right. So, you know, so it's, you know, it's kind of both.
0: Okay. And obviously,
1: you know, I, I get to know, I got to know the things that they watch for, uh, you know, as, as time went on, I learned a lot of their methods. And of course those things are going to help along the way too.
0: Right. and so then, so then you said it went in towards violence. So then you were going more into like like murder cases, or was it you were trying to help them find a certain individual who committed a violent crime?
1: Well, one of the things that I'm interested in doing it uh, full on it was probably the first murder that uh, I had been around and, and close enough to know the details of. And uh, I just didn't understand why people killed for money. And it was was one of the things that bothered me. Violence was not something I was big on. I understood it was part of that world. Just didn't understand some of the stupid violence and why somebody would kill just to get a few dollars when they could get money so many other ways in the criminal world. So when I seen this guy died over such, I think it was over a couple of thousand dollars. And uh, it, it just seemed so senseless from that from then on, I started looking for cases that were senseless violence. Um, so it was one of the areas that really bothered me, I guess, about that world. And uh, so I did do a lot of a lot of those type crimes.
0: So, like, basically, you would be looking for the the professional hitman, basically.
1: Yeah, or any just you know, like a, an example. I think I give there's quite a few examples in my book, but um, home invasions where elderly people were you know beaten um just different things vulnerable people i just didn't 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 like senseless crime so so yeah so if i was going to do the work i tried to look for stuff that i didn't mind taking the guys down i didn't really want to take down guys that were just out.
0: trying guess, to make a living right
1: yeah just not there weren't there weren't people that i would have bothered with wasn't just going to go out and i wasn't I, it's not like i had some kind of code for myself or anything or i was you know so kind got of a moral rat right <laughs> I mean, right. It, <laughs>
0: right like you have I, a moral just, compass you're like oh but i can't do this <laughs> but i can do this right yeah
1: yeah no i mean i i don't ever want to come across like you know i'm just this altruistic guy all the time i i just some things i thought were stupid and some things i thought weren't and uh you know, I was living the life. I was selling drugs. It was a little hard. It's hard to take people down when you're doing the exact same thing. And so, you know, I did. I mean, I took down competition. It's easier than killing them for sure. Um, you know, so there's there's lots of lots of benefits. Uh, you know, and and I think that's the problem. In the in the second book, I write. You know, how, I didn't know if I was Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde. Am I the good guy or the bad guy? I don't know. I did a lot of things that were good. I did a lot of things that were bad. I, I struggled with that my my entire uh, time as an informant. I still struggle to this day with it.
0: Right? Do you ever find yourself now missing that 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 thrill? You know, that adrenaline of of not necessarily. I guess missing the adrenaline of, am I going to get caught today, you know, or fuck, is somebody going to beat me up? You know, because I know that that life is it's hard, it's fast, and and there's a lot that comes with it. Hey, guys, this is Vanessa. My podcast is Life Paranormal with me. Listen, as I serve you all things spirit, paranormal and unexplained. Join me every other Saturday as my guest hosts and I recount our own experiences that will perplex and utterly terrify you. Life Paranormal with V is available on all major platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Join the Life or Fam by following me on Twitter at VLifeParanormal. Follow, like, subscribe, and hit that notification button so you can always catch a ride. On this spooky vibe,
1: I think in my head I do, uh, but I also have such a disgust for a lot of the world now. And I guess as I get, got older and 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 seen, uh, you know, the destruction and the and the just the turmoil and deaths that it caused. Even drug dealing now, you know, I, like I just said earlier, you know, drug dealing didn't seem like a big deal to me. Now I look at the meth and the opiate. Opioid uh, problem across, you know, all across North America. And I see the families that are torn apart by it. Well, it's hard to look at a drug dealer the same as I used to. They're no different than the hitman, really, when you're feeding, you know, 15, 16, 17 year old kids drugs that you know will kill them. Right. Um, so, so, I, you know, a, a different perspective now. Do I miss the. The adrenaline of taking down criminals and and being a part of the operations that was exciting. I don't know if I'd want to do it today. It was also very hard on the head uh, mentally. It's it's. I mean, you're taking p- your friends off the street. You're taking people that you get you break bread with somebody, become very close with them, and then you know you take them down. It's like you're betraying people all the time, regardless of whether you see the good in it, and regardless of how you justify it in your head it still plays on your mind after a while.
0: Right. Is that something that you still struggle with today is your mental health of, you know, pretty much taking down people that you, you know, that you potentially a either grew up with or B became really close with.
1: Oh yeah. I think that would be probably that struggle. And of course, you know, the people you've watched die over the years and the people that you've hurt and you know, so on both sides, as a criminal, I hurt lots of people uh, with drugs or running strippers or putting them on the streets and in strip bars, you know, they I've destroyed lots of people's lives. On the other hand, I've, you know, taken down bad guys who have done similar or worse. Uh, and and yet they were either whether they were friends or they became friends for the moment. If, if I went in and I, I was around targets, if the. Maude said to me, hey, here's seven targets we want you to take down in this town. Go see, work your way in. Uh, you still had to become friends with them in order to get close enough to take them down. So you still have to, and you see the good and bad in everybody. You know, I did a seven-year sentence um, back in 90, it's 92, 93, somewhere around there. I, I guess it was 93 I, I started. And uh, I tell my kids all the time, you know, when I walked around that prison yard, um, I walked around the yard with a lot of guys that I thought were really nice. They were funny. They were, you know, guys that just, you'd never know they did anything. And then you find out they did the most horrific crime of, of you know, murder or whatever it was. And uh, so, y- yet you can find something, you see something good about them. If you're, you know, you can walk the yard and laugh and tell jokes. And they have similar stories about their girlfriends, their mothers, their fathers. So, I started to see that people are, are not much different except some cross that line and some don't.
0: So we'll go back. I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but we'll go back a little bit and we'll start back with, okay, so you started doing, you know, the the violent crimes and, and taking down those kind of people. Did that lead you to organized crime, you know, particularly like with the mafia or, you know, biker gangs, which obviously you write about in your books, but, how did you get introduced to that side of it?
1: Yeah, I was very early in, in my uh, uh, crime career and my informant career. I, I was selling cocaine, and, and the cocaine uh, came from bikers. Uh, at first, it was puppet clubs for the Hells Angels, and then and then grew up into getting it directly from the Hells Angels. So yeah, it was mostly biker gangs that I, I uh, was around. They were obviously the biggest targets for me, too. If you took down a, a biker, you get paid more. So uh, the higher the target, the more money you'd make.
0: And that that included, you know, across the whole board, or was it, like, just a specific group
1: of people? Uh, you mean as far as bikers?
0: Yeah, like like if it was, like, a bigger biker gang than the other, would you get paid more, or how did that work?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you got took down that full patch Hells Angel, you would definitely get more. And uh, But getting in close to the Hells Angels is is uh, not always an easy task. I mean, I've got in there a few times. Uh, but their associate clubs somewhat different. get in with the associate clubs a lot, puppet clubs a lot. So, um, And then a lot of the associates and hangarounds.
0: For sure. I got a question. Uh, what is... Uh, Is the, does the media portray biker gangs, you know, the way it is, or is that just dramatized?
1: I think there's, well, it's obvious. It's always going to be dramatized to some degree. Um, I, my experience with bikers and specifically the Hells Angels in Canada, I, I mean, I think there's a bit of a difference between these two countries when it comes to Hells Angels and the portrayal of them anyway. Uh, in Canada, the you're not always going to see the the upper echelon of the Hell's Angels be, guys with you know long hair and you know looking like dirtbags. You, they're more likely not even to be riding a bike, driving a Lexus or a Mercedes or whatever, and uh, you know looking like uh, the real estate agent. You know,
0: wow, that's see that to me is insane. Like to that there is that 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 contrast I guess as to where you would think a upper echelon of a biker gang is going to be, you know, tatted up head to toe, you know, and not just somebody wearing a business suit, which a lot, I mean, a lot yeah. of organized crime is like that too though. Right.
1: Follow right in the footsteps of, you know, the Italian mob, which, uh, you know, is who they look up to and typically, uh, work with or for, uh, they want to legitimize everything that they do. And, uh, I think you see more of the sergeant at arms and and you know uh, club members that have to do the policing and uh, of course they got to keep control of the streets so you have that you know that look for intimidation, but most of the guys that I've dealt with over the years that were of any substance didn't even have criminal records,
0: which is downright just crazy to me because you you kind of make that stereotype judgment call on somebody like oh you're in this world you have to have a, a record right
1: yeah which is not even not accurate at all i i remember one Hell's angel that i was uh buying drugs from for a while and i was close to taking him down he ended up he was a, a striker when i first started dealing with him and not long he was in the navy and he was a cook in the navy and not long uh after i started dealing with him he got his uh he got full patch and he pulled a gun on somebody and then end up getting shot himself. So, um, but you know, there was a guy that just just left the Navy to be part of the hell's angels.
0: That's to me. Do you feel like maybe it's that the draw for them is it, it's gotta be the money, right? It's the money that draws them in. And then it's hard to get out of it. Right.
1: I think money and power and uh, those things all play into it for sure. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, you know, they're looking for family too. They're looking for this camaraderie that, the that maybe they wanted from a family or didn't get. Uh, I think there's different motive, just like with informants, there's different motivations for what they all go in for. But I think typically they're, they're looking for, uh, you know, more of a camaraderie or a family. And I think that's why it attracts military guys so quickly. And, um, you know, people that have been maybe fatherless, or or that type of person.
0: Is that what drew you into being an informant? Is is it so you could? Tr- I mean, what was your your purest motivations for being an informant?
1: Uh, I would say probably, um, if I was being honest. Uh, kudos from my handler. Uh, I grew up in a military family, so I grew up around. Uh, you know, I idolized my father. He, you know, obviously wore a uniform. He was in the Navy. When I met this one handler that I had, he was uh, he, I write about him in the second book. The second book I write is um, half, of, half the book is about him. So I would say my main motivation was always getting kudos from him. So a loyalty I had to him, you know. So I would say that would probably do it more than, than the money or more than anything then there was a certain amount of you know i knew right from wrong and i i did like taking people down maybe for the bad i did sometimes i thought i made up for it with the good i did uh you know i i look back on it now and those are the two big ones that i think motivated me but money and power you know kind of go along with it too i mean that's the part of the crime world i i obviously love the most
0: right were you ever trying to get patched into the hell's angels or was it, you were just trying to get close enough to take them down,
1: just close enough to take them down. I I would never join. I would never, I could never see the, the sense in joining a club where I would have to share my money with everybody and, and live under such rules. Just wouldn't make sense to me.
0: Like what are some of their rules that you remember having to live by that? You were like, this is absolutely crazy.
1: Well, just a hierarchy in general, or or even just in the in the paying dues. Like I just wouldn't be doing crimes that I'm going to do time for and sharing it with them. Um, it's just and I I didn't really need the silly jacket that Ben. <laughs> it just didn't <laughs> see any, didn't see any point to it ever.
0: Oh my god, a silly jacket! I like that. That's funny. So, how long were you in? being an informant before you went to prison like what at what what year was it you said it was 93 when you went to prison how yeah. long had you had been in at that point
1: how long had i had been an informant well, from an informant from 15 i was probably to 26 or nine years oh okay at that point and then i got a seven-year sentence i did a, almost five years on that and the informing didn't stop while i was in prison i i mean i went in i went into general population I informed in there and worked to get connections while I was in there for when I got out.
0: Now, did you continue to inform when you got out from this from this sentence?
1: Yeah, when I got out I in fact, I went right into an operation and uh, in the midst of that, I ended up getting put back in. and then uh, I when I finished my parole was when this last operation took place.
0: So I want to touch a little bit on prison because I'm, you know, I'm not knocking anybody who's ever been, but I've never been myself, and so it's kind of that yeah. um, that gentle curiosity that I have. I mean, is it as is it as bad as everybody makes it out to be, or I mean, is it everybody pretty chill until they're you know till there just comes a time that they're not? I mean, how does that work? In prison. Yeah.
1: I found prison to be an interest. You know, I get asked a lot, and I have a lot of friends, family, uh, what I thought of prison. Uh, they always get a little surprised by my answer. I'm glad I went. Uh, I'm I, I, For the experience, I'm glad I got to experience it. You know, I read a lot of books when I was a kid, and I read a lot of books on prison, mafia, organized crime, that type of thing. I remember I aspired to be... You know, if I was going to be a criminal, I wanted to be a good criminal. I guess if I was going to be an informant, I wanted to be a good informant. But I remember when I got to prison, the first thing I thought was, "Wow, this is what I aspired to be." And I'm, <laughs> I'm looking around at people, and I'm thinking, "This is it. This was. This is the end game for this, uh, this lifestyle." And I. I thought it's, it's, it's a sad, sad existence. Uh, the violence, it's, it's everything you see in the movies, just not in two hours, right? Like, right. I mean, is there not, is there stabbings? Yes. Is there pipings? Yes. Is there rapes? Yes. Um, you know, is there depression? That would probably be the thing that stood out to me more than anything, the sadness and the depression of people around me, uh, the screams at night, uh, the hangings, people hanging themselves. Um, those, those things probably stand out to me more than the violence. The violence is almost expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, the criminal world is a violent place. So uh, you, it, it just goes with the territory. What I wasn't really prepared for was how many people just lost hope and, and hanged themselves.
0: One of my biggest problems that I have with our really the world and their prison systems are is they're not there to reform people like they say or rehabilitate you know it's it's about incarceration and not actually helping them you know become a better person and that's what I have a problem with
1: yeah I, I think you know the prisons are not set up in order to succeed I mean uh, there's a lot of a lot of people I think go into corrections and, and want to do good and would like to help people and uh, they'd like to see recidivism change I just you know the prison system itself just is not set up for it and the truth is society i mean in the states it's a little different you guys got privatized prisons um, so it's a money maker and it is to somewhat anywhere but it keeps people in business you know in jobs and that kind of thing but i think that society just doesn't care enough they're apathetic uh, do they really want people to change or do they just want them locked away and they want their pound of flesh and You know, and and don't get me wrong, many people deserve to be locked away and they they should be locked away. And, uh, you know, but there's there's a a big enough group of people that we could easily, by doing a few things, changing a few things, uh, we could stop them from going back to prisons again. Uh, But it's not set up that way. So... Right, I talk a little bit about it in in Treacherous, my first book. I talk a little bit about how I would see the prison system being able to help guys. You know, when a guy goes into prison and gains weight, because he didn't know how to cook in the street, he didn't know how to get a job, he didn't know how he had no skills, no talents, no nothing. And then we put him in prison, but we don't want to spend society. Oh, we don't want to spend money on education. We don't want to spend money on this or you know getting him to a place where he, could, he or she could succeed well, what are you going to do? You're going to have somebody, well, you're going to pay for him for the rest of his life then because they're going to go back in and they're going to keep going back in. I would rather see us spend money, you know, when they first go in the first time and try to bring them to a place where they have a meaningful trade, not some, just mopping a floor. And not that that can't be meaningful in itself, but give them something that they can actually strive for when they get out. You know, prepare them for the outside. Hi, friends. Ian here. Do you enjoy atypical conversations about history? Do you like an occasional sip or three of whiskey? Then come on over to the bar of questionable life choices and join me for an episode of Why Whiskey? We're a history podcast with a whiskey problem. Or maybe we're a whiskey podcast with a history problem. We'll let you decide all that. On Why Whiskey, I'm often joined by guests as we cover historical events in America and around the world and the people that were involved. Throughout the show, we will taste a wide variety of whiskeys and share some knowledge about what it is that we are drinking. So, if any of this interests you, come on up to the bar, grab a glass, and let's share some great stories. Cheers.
0: Right. And that's, you know, that's part of it too. Being, you know, you luckily had a job, so to speak, to fall back on when you got out the first time, right? So. It wasn't like you were coming out of prison per se, like somebody who has no skills, and that's the hardest part too, is because there's really nothing for them to come out to. They don't have. It's so hard for somebody who's been to prison to get a real job, because nobody wants to hire them.
1: Well, and especially if they went in and they never had any kind of family upbringing. I grew up in a good military home where I had a father and a mother that loved me and taught me good skills. So my foundation and my base. Uh, was fairly good and I was an observant person but many guys in there I went in like I I would we would go through a say a, a program in there a cognitive living skills type thing so it'd be just kind of a you know a program trying to teach guys how to make proper decisions and they couldn't read or write so you know I'd have to sit with guys and and help help them with the material because they couldn't even read or write. Well, how about we teach them to read and write first and give them some education and help them along that way instead of just giving them some program just because it fits their case plan and, uh, and sending them along their on their way. I mean, for the most part, they know they're going to come back because there's nothing being done to change them.
0: Right. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, right?
1: Yeah, and that doesn't take away personal responsibility. I mean, I don't ever want to think, I don't want society to think that I'm sitting here going, yeah, yeah, prisoners need deserve all this help. I'm just saying they deserve uh, to have a fair chance in order for them to not end up back in prison where we have to keep paying for them. So, right. I mean, and some guys, listen, there is. I would say there's probably 1% of the prison population that actually has to be locked away forever that's probably about the right percentage and, and the others, you know, there's a chance with them. They, they, and they're going to get out. And that's, that's the other big thing, especially here in Canada, not so much in the States, but here in Canada, most prisoners are getting out of, out of jail. They're, they're not going to be there forever. So do you want them to come out better or do you just want them to come out bitter? Right. Cause I would rather have them come out better.
0: And you're right. And that's the difference between, you know, like America and Canada is, america they almost want them to stay in because of that privatization of you know the prison system as to where you know canada's like because eh. i i look at prison sentences between america and like other places and they're vastly different they're not it's not the same you you know and that part is crazy to me is it's 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 almost like they want our population to stay in prison
1: well you know it's interesting there's a, a... I'm working on a book right now with uh, with Ori Spado, and uh, Ori's a ex well, you know, been in around the mob, you know, around Sonny Francis for forty years, and and uh, up until his death, and we, we've, he's been in prison in the states on a RICO charge, and I'm, you know, I've done time up here, and uh, he just finished a book, and and so we were talking. And, if there's one thing i'd like to write and we'd like to write about is the difference between the prison systems in the states and canada and the taking the good out of the one the one and the and the other and showing what would work and we've been kind of playing around with that idea for a while now so we'll see where that goes
0: well as a somebody who doesn't know a whole lot about the prison it sounds interesting and it sounds like something that needs to be out there like, it. it's yeah. definitely one of those things that needs to get in the hands of somebody who can make a change, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. I
0: agree. All right, so you got out of prison in, in so let's see, you did five years, so you got out of prison in 98, right? That roughly, yeah. right? All right, and then, so you Nin- went...
1: Well, it was 97, yeah. 97. 97. The end of, yeah, I guess the end of '9. Nine- 97. Yeah. 97. I guess I went in in 92. I went in, in 92. My last, uh, when I went in, I was getting sentenced for different crimes. I had, I had a slew of crimes. So my last sentence was probably in 93, but the first of my sentence started in 92 and then I got out in 97.
0: Okay. Okay. So you got out in 97 and you immediately went back to work. Now, was that back to work you know, trying to take down the Hells Angels or were you doing other things at that point?
1: Uh, at that point I was, uh, working for the Hells Angels, uh, working, running strippers, uh, and selling cocaine. So, and at the same time I was working my way into them to take them down. So that operation ended, uh, I got in a fight with uh, one, with my hand, one of my handlers. And, uh, that kind of went down the tubes and they put me back inside for a few months and transferred me to another province. And when I got out, I waited till my parole ended. And then I went back to, to Nova Scotia, which is where the last operation took place, worked my way into the Hells Angels there. And that's when I found out there was a hit going down. I was trying to stop that hit. And I ended up right in the middle of it and then driving the car that day to the murder.
0: Now, did you get charged for for this crime?
1: I got arrested for it. And then they found out I, was, I had been an informant for the RCMP and trying to stop the murder. And then we negotiated a deal where I would wear a wire for the next months in amongst all of the targets and bring them down. So I did that. And then there was 18 years of trials after that, so that I had to
0: testify in. Right. So what, so you said you were trying to stop this hit. Obviously you were trying to feed them information. Were they just not listening to you?
1: Well, there was a, there was an operation that went bad in, in 90 in, I guess it was 91 just before my prison sentence. I did a, I did an operation uh, in another province and it ended early because of, Uh, some issues with a woman that I had, and uh, I I ended up walking away from it. And they were kind of angry about that and blacklisted me for a little while. And unfortunately, there was a mistake in taking that off the computer that monitors uh, uh, informants and agents. So we were busy trying to get that off. In fact, the label is called Treacherous, hence the name for the first book. Uh, the label is treacherous. So uh, trying to get treacherous taken off my name off that system. And meanwhile, still giving them the information while they're trying to get that taken off. And, uh, unfortunately the murder took place before the, before they got it off my name until that came off, they weren't allowed to deal with me. However, they did behind the scenes.
0: Right. Of course. Now walk me through that day. Did you think like when you woke up that morning that, Cause you obviously, you knew this was coming, Like it was, there was a buildup to it. Right. It wasn't like you just woke up one morning and they're like, okay, we're going to go kill somebody. They were obviously looking for him. Right.
1: No, as a matter of fact, I supplied the gun. I was, uh, I was uh, hunting the guy down myself, uh, me and, and two others. So I was a part of the process the whole time. Although for me, I was playing a role and, But the role was just as real as if I wasn't playing a role. So, again, you know, the the distinction in your head when you're doing it isn't always as clear as one might think. In hindsight, I can look back and say, well, this is how it was really meant to be. But the truth is, I'm just a part of the murder. Um, So I showed up uh, that morning. I had phoned the Mounties on uh, the Friday before the last time. And they said, call me back on Monday. Well, the guy said, call us back on Monday and uh, we'll, we'll get hooked up and we'll go over things. I called the, uh, uh, I didn't call Monday. They said they called me later on, but they didn't call me Monday. Tuesday morning, I'm I'm where, I guess we'd say we went to work. We're in the area where we're working. The phone call comes through and saying they found them. And, you know, my partner grabbed a gun, it was my gun, grabbed it out of his house, it happened to be at his place at the time, and said, let's go. And we got in the car, we drove over and killed him. So there wasn't really a lot of time to think about it.
0: You said there wasn't a whole lot of time to think about it. You didn't at one point think, I guess there was no way to just stop and say, I can't, right, I can't do this. Otherwise, you would completely blow everything up, right?
1: Well, you know, again, hindsight is 20, 20 I mean, I've been asked that by many police officers over the years. Did you think about doing anything different? Well, I was driving the car. Now that I'm thinking back on it, could I have done something different? I suppose I I guess I could have drove the car into a lamppost. I, I guess I could have said, hey, give me the gun. I'll go kill him and then took off. Uh, I probably could have done lots of things. But in the moment, all you're thinking is, okay, there's four of us in this car, uh, three, three of his probably have guns. Uh, I'm driving. I don't have one. He's using my gun. Uh, so uh, what do I do? Say, sorry, I can't go to a murder today, guys, or, <laughs> or stop. I, I'm going to stop and you drive. I'm going to take off, you know, like, you know, stop and let me use the phone first, <laughs> you know, there's not right. much I can do at that point. Right. Yeah. I'm not taking a bullet to the back of the head. So,
0: well, I mean, and, and that's, that was going to be my next question is Or at least my next theory was probably going to be that that fear of, you know, getting killed yourself of them then saying, you know, you saying, no, we can't do this or wait, guys, let's, you know, go have ice cream first or, you know, whatever it is to, you know, then they're going to obviously get suspicious and then you're dead. And and that other person's dead anyways, because after they kill you, they're going to go kill him. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was inevitable that he was going to die. I mean, I did try to talk them out of it. I did say it was a stupid idea. It was like, it was just after lunch, I guess. We met that morning. It was probably lunchtime when we found out just after lunch. I do remember there was kids crossing. It was like afternoon because there was kids crossing at a crosswalk, either going to school or leaving school. And it was after lunch. So It was in the afternoon, so I I do remember saying that like this is crazy, it's the middle of the afternoon, we're going to shoot somebody in the middle of the afternoon, and uh, they didn't really care. So Uh, then afterwards, uh, I dropped those guys off, Uh, I took all the uh, evidence, and I was supposed to go burn it and throw it over the Halifax Bridge into the harbour. And instead, I took it out into the woods and buried all the evidence and used it later on when I got arrested.
0: How long after the crime were you arrested?
1: Uh, the murder took place on October 3rd, and they raided my apartment on October 11th, arrested uh, one of my partners, took my kids into foster care, and then the next morning, I turned myself in.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Okay at that point you you knew that you know that the jig was up were you like screaming like hey i've been trying to tell you guys about this for you know however long and you guys aren't listening you know and now we're in this position like how did that how did the negotiation start there
1: well, the problem is it's it, i the investigating police force was a municipal police force so uh, and I worked for the RCMP, which was a federal the federal police force. So it'd be kind of like FBI state police type thing. Um, so one didn't know the other, uh, that I was working for the other until I was ready to tell them. So I, I was interrogated for, I guess I'm mean, a 12, 15 hours. And finally, at one point, I took out a card that happened to be in my pocket that they didn't get when they, they didn't touch when they searched me. And it was the Depart- Justice Department's card. So I took the card out, threw it on the table, and said, why don't you call them? And at first, I asked for a bathroom break. So they took me to the washroom. And when we were at the, in the washroom, I took the card out, I threw it on the sink, and I said, why don't you call them and ask them why he's dead. And that started the conversation. So they turned off the cameras and uh that's when we started negotiating
0: and did you have to go was it strictly just you and them or is it kind of like you had to get a lawyer and do that whole thing
1: uh at some point they supplied me with a lawyer Uh, i think most of it was at some point like you just got to trust them you got to use your instinct and say you know how much do i trust them they're going to trust me a certain amount so it's you know, it was tense. It was a two or three week negotiation. They took me to court the next morning and charged me with weapons charges um, from the raid on my apartment where they had got some guns. And then they gave me bail. So I was able to get out on the bail after the interrogation. And so the Hells Angels were a little suspicious still because I got out. Um, but at the same time, I'd only been charged with the weapons. So it was touch and go there, so I had to keep my wits about me in the street but at the same time keep negotiating with the police so that they didn't end up charging me with the murder. And so that we could get this done, I needed to get an immunity agreement and then and then we'd be able to do the operation, which we eventually did.
0: Hi, I'm Chelsea, the host of Crime and Crime Again. On my podcast, I cover lesser-known true crime cases. I tell the stories that you may not have heard before. Join me in bringing light to the stories of the missing and murdered, and being a voice when their own has been silenced. You can find Crime and Crime Again anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Right. Okay. So negotiations were 2 to 3 weeks. You got immunity and then at that point it was game on. You're testifying against everybody you can.
1: Well, from then I from that point on, I had to wear a wire and then they wired up my house, my vehicle. Everywhere I went, there was a wire. And uh they set up meetings. Or, well, I'd set up the meetings and they'd tell me what I they'd want me to try to get for information to try to get. These guys talking on the wire saying that they conspired to kill uh, Sean, and so we would we would uh, meet at the safe house, put the wire on me, and then I would go to these meetings at the club and and uh, or wherever. Two of them had ended up in the county jail, so I ended up going into jail wearing a wire, talking to them there, until we gathered all the evidence. Which took I don't know three or four months. And once we gathered all the information, all the evidence we needed, uh, then I went into. Uh, they took them all down, arrested them all. I went into witness protection, and then I had to start testifying at the trials.
0: What was uh, witness protection like for you?
1: Uh, it's you know I have a new book coming out on on that. Uh, just waiting for some legal things to be cleared up uh, before I can let it out, but. I, psychologically it was probably uh, over time became really uh, really uh, insane uh you know you're, you're killing off everybody in your life and walking away from everybody you have ever known so uh, you're not seeing your parents again you're not seeing your family again you're not seeing anybody again so
0: now when it, you it... go ahead i'm sorry
1: no it's, it's good i mean say it, it it's a It is definitely stressful. I mean, you're and you're walking away from everything you ever did. So it's the end of an identity for you too, whether it be the informant identity or the criminal identity or even your own surname identity, all of it is gone.
0: When you got kicked out of the witness protection, I mean, were a lot of those people still around for you to be able to go back and say, hey, or I mean, did you ever reach out while you were in there? Or is it kind of one of those things you just, you literally had to walk
1: away and that was it? Uh, I've, I've been able to see a limited number of people, Right. very limited. It's been, it's been at first you got to, you know, who's going to talk to the rat type thing, right? So you got to figure out which one's going to set you up and which one will still talk to you. Um, so that, that, that had its moments, but you know, overall, I mean, my, the hardest part is bringing your family into it with you. Right. You know, so, so you know, you're bringing your kids into a, an environment that, you know, you're you're living a lie. I mean, that's the biggest problem with witness protection, from my perspective, is having to live a complete lie, and then from a kid's perspective, it's you know having to move. Maybe again, like I've had to change my name twice. So it's a it's a different world altogether.
0: Right. Did they, cause I've, I talked to somebody else who had also lived in the witness protection, but the crazy part is, is they had him still working. He was an undercover, uh, police officer and they had him still yeah. working while he was in witness protection. Is that something they tried to have you do was still, uh, informing while you were in witness protection or did they pretty much at that point you were done with informing yeah
1: no I, I had a you remember in Canada the mounties are the ones that uh administer the witness protection program and there was such a rift between us between us that uh we didn't have it wasn't likely we were going to do anything other again now they having said that I did end up speaking at their source handling courses years later and uh but that's the most work I've done for them.
0: So after you're done with witness protection, you start writing your books, and then that brings us to present day. What, with I mean, what is your advice? I guess to anybody who's trying to either a get out of that life or, you know, trying to move in a direction you did. What what kind of advice would you give them?
1: Well, I think first I would say, whatever you're reading in books, um, it glorifies that world or whatever you're watching on TV that glorifies that world. Uh, there's nothing glorifying about it. It's all fickle, it all goes away. Uh, there's nobody there. Listen, you end up in one of uh, three places, and dead, uh, a jail cell, or witness protection. Uh, none of those places are any good. Uh, and I, I can tell you that there's, you know, Walking the straight and, narrow, straight and narrow, and living for anybody who's a criminal who wants to walk out. You know, I, I, I do some speaking. Uh, well, I did until COVID, but I, I did a lot of speaking. And one of the things I spoke on was transferable skills. Most people that were willing to rob banks or do whatever, and they were they were willing to risk their freedom and their and their lives to make a little bit of money at crime. Well, if you're willing to take those kind of risks in the corporate world or, you know, in the in the straight world, you will do a million times better and never have to look over your back. Because you've already got what it takes, you know, to maneuver through uh, for the skills. You, you, there's so many skills that are transferable from the crime world into the corporate world that don't involve having to have a bad moral compass.
0: So do you are you still look over your shoulder now? Are you worried now about somebody from your past coming back for you?
1: I wouldn't say I worry about it very much. I'm aware of it. Uh, Am I scared? Yes. I think I'd be lying to say I'm not scared. I think, do I care? Probably not. I think I have more life behind me than I do ahead of me anyway. Um, I worry more about my children I don't want to die in front of my children. So I don't want to get shot in my driveway. Um, I don't want to. I don't want them to get hurt in the process of me getting killed. So, aside from those types of issues, no, I don't care.
0: Have you had anybody show up out of nowhere, or has it been a pretty low key life since you've got out of of witness protection?
1: Uh, it's had. I've had a few close close calls.
0: And that, I mean, that's gotta almost rattle you to the core, right?
1: It, uh, like I said, as long as, long as, it's, as long as it doesn't involve my children or them uh, getting hurt or my family having to see something that would be horrific for them and, and stressful in them, um, I, I, you know, I've had a good life so far. I have a blessed family. I, I'm blessed. I have a great family. I, I don't think I could ask for much more that way so, you know, if, if this is the way, if I go out, I go out. I mean, I guess we're all going to die and we can't all get hit by trucks.
0: So. <laughs> well, that's one, that's an outlook. All right. So let's move away from, from such a serious subject. Why don't you run me through your books? Right. Cause I, I've, I've seen some of your books. I haven't had a chance to read them obviously yet, but, um, you know, what, what started the process for you to write your first
1: book? Uh, Treacher started with me just wanting to tell the truth. It was just, I, I was getting such bad publicity in the news. I just wanted my own children and my own family members to know exactly what took place. So I wanted to write a book. I knew nothing about writing, but I just knew that all the stuff in the newspapers and on, on TV was just uh, making me look like the devil himself. And I thought, well, I just want to write an accurate book. Uh, picture of what took place whether it was good or bad or, or, or whatever I just didn't want to I wasn't going to lie in it I didn't want anything I didn't want to glorify crime for sure I knew that much and so I, I wasn't going to write anything that would glorify it and I just wanted to make sure sh- and I didn't want to hurt the victim's family any more than I had already done by participating in the murder but I just wanted an accurate picture out there so I sat down and just started writing and I hope I achieved that with the first one. Um, the second one I, I wrote specifically for police officers, and it's to teach teach or de- impart my my uh, experiences and the wisdom I gained from my experiences to impart that to them. In hopes that uh, what happened to me as an informant doesn't happen to another uh, informant um, or agent. Uh, and what uh, and how to keep them, so them safe and keep them from being manipulated as well uh, informants police agents uh, you know sources were very manipulative and and were quite capable of of getting you uh, a police officer killed too so i wanted to m- make sure i wrote a book that was accurate about what informants are motivated by and what types of things they do and how they do counter surveillance and all the types of things they do uh, to protect themselves and, and, their, and their nature. And then write about you know a, what i seen as a good handler. And that was the second part of my second book is all about the handler that I had that I thought had lots of integrity and although he might have been in a system that i didn't agree with i thought he was pretty integral for the system he was within
0: and what was the name of that book
1: that one's inside a police informant's mind and it really does take how uh, you know I, I, here's this criminal a guy from a criminal element and this police officer two different value systems uh, i i describe it in there like a you know a dysfunctional marriage where you know that has to somehow. We have to learn to trust one another in this, in the midst of this dysfunction. And uh, how does that work and go forward and trust your lives with each other?
0: Right. So, so that's book two. How many books do you have?
1: Uh, my third book is a Christian book that I wrote with a, a friend in Indiana, and that one is uh, that one was written just about um, me turning to. Uh, Christ after after I got out of the uh, out of that lifestyle and and just what that did for me and then my fourth book now is one on uh on witness protection itself
0: I've I'm I'm sure the life of a writer is a lot more quieter than than the life that you lived before right
1: I I have nine kids so nothing's quiet around me
0: oh (laughs) man okay (laughs) Nine yeah. kids, that that's yeah. that's a family right there, man.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was working at a ball team.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're almost there, man. You're you're getting close. Are you done? Yeah. I, I mean, you have to be done at some point, right?
1: Yeah, yeah I'm hoping. I'm I'm sure my nine year old is hoping she's the she's the baby. <laughs> she stays the baby. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right, well, Paul, it's been an honor to have you on, man, but there's one question that I have left for you, and it's a question that I ask all my guests, and uh, I hope you won't mind answering. Okay. If you could be one sandwich condiment, what would you be and why?
1: One sandwich condiment. (laughs) Mustard. Hot mustard, because... Because it burns.
0: <laughs> That's a good answer. Are you talking like like a like a like a spicy mustard, like uh, Dijon mustard, or something a little bit spicier? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, Well, even spicier would be even better.
0: There you go. Well, again, Paul, I, it's it's been an honor to have you on. Uh, where can they find you at? Where can they follow you at? And where are your books available?
1: Uh, the books are available on my site at uh, www dairy.ca or the publisher site is CoastalWest.ca, and i think you can order them at amazon chapters indigo barnes and noble the stores uh, treacherous for sure is in all those places inside a police informant's mind was written as a textbook it's a little more expensive so it's only in certain places but you can definitely get it on my site or at the publisher
0: And then, as far as your social media presence, are you? you, Do you have a social media presence, or do you kind of try to stay away from it?
1: No, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, and mostly LinkedIn, although that goes through to my Twitter. Uh, But I'm heavy on LinkedIn. You can read all my opinions, my opinionated self on on LinkedIn (laughs) uh, quite often, Uh, and yeah, and Twitter. Those are the two big ones. I am on Facebook too, but I don't. I don't converse on there as much as I do on LinkedIn.
0: Right on. Well, thanks again for coming on, Paul. I, I really hope you enjoyed your, your chat here on the jury room and we appreciate you being on.
1: You bet. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it.
0: Have a good day, man. You too, bud. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner walking past your house at night so watch out stay safe and keep listening this has been the jury room